Welcome to the January 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. You will find us on the web at ordinarymeans.com. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, sitting here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. How are you doing, Matt? Doing very well, thank you. Good to, uh, good to have you here with us. Well, we, uh, we're going to take advantage today of the fact that this is our podcast, and we're going to talk about something that is not a ordinary means of grace, at least not in the confessional way of speaking about the ordinary means, but something that definitely is a means of grace. And I think we have that privilege, this being our podcast after all, uh, we have that privilege of uh, talking about things that, uh, that relate to the ordinary means but might not necessarily fall into that category. Uh, what we'd like to talk about today are three things. You've probably heard of them in uh, books like uh, books on Christian disciplines. You've heard these three words, simplicity, silence, and solitude. And those three things are three things that are to be part of every Christian's life. And the scriptures definitely speak to each of those three things. Uh, but they're not an ordinary means of grace. They're, they're a general, a, an unspecific means of grace, a way that God works uh, in his timing, in his providence, um, to, to minister to us, to but grow us. An, but they're an aid yes. to our use of the ordinary means it, of grace. It, oh, precisely, precisely. Uh, let's define them, shall we? Sure, sounds uh, good. Simplicity. What do you think of when, I, when we say Simplicity. The absolute opposite of the lives of most Americans. <laughs> that, that's so true. It is. It's that is absolutely so true. true. Sean and I both used to live in Southern California, which is, if, if you're familiar with Southern California, it's a wonderful place to live, um, but it's extraordinarily busy. Um, my wife and I were relieved when we moved here, but Sean and I both live in southwestern Pennsylvania, that the pace of life is so much slower. Oh, but, it's wonderful. But it's wonderful by comparison. Um, there's actually evenings like tonight when I'll go home and there's nothing that actually has to get done outside of things in the home. There's nothing going on. There's, there's nothing, nothing going on, exactly. Even, I, often, I often have people ask me, you know, where are you from? And they expect to hear that I'm from some little town in Pennsylvania. And I say, well, I'm from San Diego. And they say, wow, that's a change. <laughs> It's it's so true. This is but but even here, even here. It's not I don't is there such a thing as true simplicity? I think that there is, but it's something that is so foreign to most of us that it it uh we couldn't recognize it or if we did recognize it, we would probably eschew it. We would not want it. Because it it our difficulty is that we have grown so used to moving through life at a hurried pace, never stopping to reflect, um, that we're actually uncomfortable with simplicity. We're uncomfortable with there being time where um, nothing's demanded of us, where every dollar, every minute uh, is not locked up somewhere, somehow. We think of, we probably think of, when we think of simplicity, uh, one of those TV shows where they you go back to being a, a settler. Right, right. You go back to being a pioneer, and, you know, simplicity for us means no running water. And it, it doesn't have to mean that. No, no, I don't think so. I think that what it is is that we recognize that uh, if we were to go to the far extreme, most of us are 
pretty much used to. The far extreme is that you're just busy all the time, and it's from dawn until dusk and after, uh, your life is completely full. There's no stopping. It's, it's completely busyness all the time. And I don't think that what Sean and I are going for is that you've got to go back to being a settler or a pioneer. Yeah. But what we are saying is that a life that does not have room because it's too full, either economically or uh, in terms of somebody's time, even their relationships, that a life that's too full, that's not simple, simply doesn't leave time for living the Christian life the best that it can be. When we talk about simplicity, we're talking about reflecting the character of God. Uh, mm. Simplicity is one of, in, in classic systematic theology, one of, the thi- one of the words that you'll come across to describe God is that he is simple. And that doesn't mean uh, that God is a hillbilly. Uh, that doesn't mean that God is uneducated. Uh, what it means is that God is in and of himself all that he needs. He, he is at his base, uh, well, perfect would be to put it another way, but he, he has the, the basic characteristics uh, that fulfill themselves, that are everything he needs to be to be God. He is simple. There's nothing, well, there, you can't say there's nothing complex about God because God is complex, but that is one of the characteristics that's given to God, is he's simple. So when we exercise simplicity, we're sort of going back to a, a grassroots, what is the foundation of who we are, why are we here? I was, I was just listening to something earlier today on, um, on Albert Camus, hmm. uh, and his, the question that he asked was a very good question, and that is, uh, why, why do we exist? Is there any purpose to why we exist? And he asked the question because he said, if, if there isn't a purpose to why we exist, then, why, then we should all just commit suicide and, and be done with it. Right. That yep, was, that was yep. what, uh, where, he, where he headed with that thinking. Uh, but the question is, why do we exist? And simplicity is seeking out those basic reasons that we exist. We don't exist to go to meetings. We don't exist to eat fast food. Right. We don't exist to drink Starbucks coffee. We don't exist to watch television shows. We don't exist uh, for all these peripheral things. Why do we exist? Well, we exist, the Shorter Catechism tells us, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I think, I think that's the rub. We're so busy trying to enjoy something that we're dabbling in everything and missing the real substance of what it is to be alive and to enjoy being alive, which is to enjoy God. We're so busy enjoying everything else or a little bit of everything else that we don't get back to uh, enjoying God. Well, you know what that is. That's idolatry. Enjoying anything other than God as, as the prime enjoyment of your life is idolatry. I don't think we're always willing to admit that, but that's the case. Mm. If there's anything in, in our life that comes before God, uh, we've broken the second commandment. Right, right. I, we just got through the Christmas season, and I think of the words of Mary uh, when the angel Gabriel comes to her. And first she asks that question, how can this be? Uh, which is actually a question of belief. Mm. If you compare her with, in, particularly in Luke, 
If you compare her with Zacharias, Zacharias asks a question. He says, uh, he says, what's my sign going to be? In other words, I don't believe you. Prove it to me. Uh, Mary asks a question, but her question is, okay, I think I get what you're saying, but that's impossible. And so her question, we're told in the scripture, um, in fact, Elizabeth prophesying says that what she did was believe in what Gabriel had told her. And Mary's response then to everything the angel says is, I am the bondservant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Hmm. That's simplicity. Hmm. It's, it's a, an implicit trust in that what God wants is the best thing. And so I'm going to take just that and nothing else. I don't need anything else. I don't need any signs. I don't need, uh, you know, I don't need my ears tickled. I don't need my pleasures fulfilled. I just need God. And so, so maybe simplicity is a, is a sort of back to God movement. Yep, Fernando Ortega has a song uh, that it's caused me to reflect some because I, I think it's a scriptural sentiment, but I, I resist it in some senses because of, of other passions that the scripture has. But he has a song um, where the refrain is, just give me Jesus. And uh, there's something uh, profound about that, is that we're so busy asking that God would give us so many other things that have, have we missed the core of Christian spirituality? Would, would the 167 hours outside of church demonstrate that the core of Christian spirituality, that our lives are actually oriented around God, around Jesus' Son given for us, that our access to God is through Him, would they actually reveal that that's what our lives are about? Or they reveal something else? Now, is there a danger there to say, just give me Jesus? I think there is. Because I have, as anybody who's read, heard me on this or, or read blog posts or whatever, I'm, I am passionate about getting behind things. It's, it's one of the big themes that I think is important. Getting, this, getting behind things in terms of understanding why that thing exists. Not just why it exists, but why our passions exist, why, uh, why we enjoy food. Uh, we were just talking before we came out of the podcast about Ken Myers and his fine ministry. And one of the things that Ken Myers has helped me think through well about the Christian view of things uh, is that we're people that are passionate but about bodies and about embodiment. He's actually, Ken Myers has actually convinced me that we ought to use not, um, not uh, embodied souls but ensouled bodies as the description of humans. That body is so important to the Christian worldview uh, that it's of the very essence of what it means to be human is to be in a body. But when we look at the scriptures... That, that's very incarnational. It is, absolutely. It, it's taking seriously the fact that Christ came in a body, not just so it could be broken, but because it's the essence of what it means to be our elder brother. To be a part of our race is to be bodied. And when you look, for example, in 1 Timothy, we just finished studying this in our church. When you look at 1 Timothy and you see the, the, the heresies, the anti-Christian heresy that Paul is exhorting Timothy to teach against in Ephesus, part of it, amazingly, the core of Christian truth is about forbidding people to eat some things. Because anything... Uh, received with thanks by God, ought to be eaten. 
It's to get behind the thing that I'm eating and to see there that this is a good gift from God. That every blessing comes from the Father of lights above. And so we have to resist, I think, uh, a Gnostic sort of antibody, just me and Jesus communion thing. But I think that that can't be the only thing. It's that I do need to filter my other blessings. I have to learn to look behind them and see that these are gifts from a good father. And that's whether it's food or relationships or soccer or friendships or anything. But the question is, do we get behind them? Is yeah, there do, enough time? Is do there we, enough? Do we ask that question? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and we and we need to. Well, and I think that what living simply does is it gives us. There was a, an influential book that really helped a friend of mine in the early '90s. I may have mentioned it before, but it's a book called Margin. Mm-hmm. And the concept, and you might not agree with all of it. And I'm not saying buy the book and read it, but the concept is that a life without margin uh, is simply too hurried. There has to be margin there if there's going to be reflection. And that's how I think both simplicity or how simplicity, solitude, and silence all reflect back on the ordinary means. If there's no margin for us to reflect, we're not getting from the ordinary means what we ought. Yeah, if we're not practicing simplicity, then our practice of the ordinary means is, is a rush. It's, it's a rush job. Well, and it's a broken dynamic. Here God has given us this word and his spirit and the, the communion of saints it, so that we would be, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, so we would be transformed. And here we're not giving him time to get the thing done. Yeah. We homeschool our kids, and one of the things we found with our oldest is uh, she has a tendency right now to, uh, because she has something else on her mind that she wants to do, that whatever the assignment is before her, if, if she's bored with it, that she'll just go through quick. Because she knows she can write, she knows she can, uh, she knows the answers to the questions, and so she'll do sloppy work. And I think maybe we do the same thing with our Christianity. Hmm. We know the answer, we know Jesus came to die for our sins, and so when it comes to the ordinary means, we do sloppy work. Hmm. Simplicity calls us back to doing our work right the first time. Uh, which is which is important to not have a life that's so full of what might be good things. We're not saying that the life's full of sin, but uh, are we choosing wisely, selectively, um, that we might be able to live a reflective life? Well, I liked your point earlier that uh, that food can be enjoyed. Uh, so that means that simplicity does not mean I have to give up chocolate mousse. Which is, which is important to me. <laughs> no, it's, it's very, very important true. To me. Um, simplicity might mean I have to give up something. You mentioned the book Margin. There was another book called Hedges. Hmm. And I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember who wrote that. Um, but in that book, the idea was guarding those relationships that are important to you. Hmm. And you do that by setting up hedges in your life. You do that by setting up boundaries, and it's by setting up those boundaries, saying no to certain things, right. that, uh, that then you can improve those relationships in your life. A perfect example is our family. Um, in fact, this was one of the great uh, blessings, I think, of Promise Keepers. Uh, for all of its faults, I think Promise Keepers got it right that men need to be committed to their families. Mm-hmm. And if work is getting in the way of your family, then you need to do something about that. You need to quit your job. You need to make new 
requirements. You need to take a cut and pay. Whatever it is, right. you need to do what you need to do to take care of your family. Yeah. Well, the same thing is true for church. The same thing is true for the Christian body. The same thing is true for you personally. Now, I, I think one of the dangers of simplicity is selfishness. Hmm. I think what I've seen in some who've tried to define simplicity is they've headed towards a kind of idolatry of simplicity. Hmm. A, a worshipping of a life free from, from everything. You know, we, the, 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 the bad picture of homeschoolers, for example. Uh, Doug Wilson calls them um, homers. He says, uh, he says homeschoolers are those who made a conscious decision to, to train their children at home. He says homers are these extremists who, are, are, who have a wrong view of how Christians are to live in the world to the point that they're protecting their children from the very things they're supposed to be training their children to deal with. To effectively interact with. Yeah, they're supposed to be training their children to have a world Christian worldview as they live in the world, in the world but not of the world, uh, the, the, to train our children to interact with the world, to be, you know, for lack of a better term, socialized, you know, to have the ability to interact with people in this world. Our kids do need that. Absolutely. Um, but there is, a, there is a tendency in simplicity, you know, to move to the compound, to, to get away to the point that there is, no, there is no interaction with the world anymore. Well, and I think that most of us, if we actually lived a life that was fairly simple, um, would actually have time again for relationships. Uh, one of the things that I think that, that results mm, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a life that is too complex is that there is uh, a dearth of time and energy, even willingness, uh, to pursue relationships. I can remember a, <coughs> a very um, striking visit that I made uh, when I was uh, on staff in a church in California. And I, I went to visit the home of somebody who had uh, come to our church. And it turned out, I didn't know this when the man visited, but it turned out he was an elder in another church and his family had been ill. And he um, just decided not to make the drive all the way to his church and instead came to our church on that Sunday. But as I went in this man's home and I sat with him, I found um, his children, some of them rather young, all engaging in a very effective conversation with me. Interested in conversing with me and intelligently uh, about uh, their experience at the church, uh, my life, what I was doing. And it struck me that this family, now he was a, an American Airlines pilot. He drove all the way from, he drove over an hour to go to work at LAX from where he lived. And, um, but what he had chosen to do was to have his life, his family life lived simply enough that there was time for relationships. I think sometimes even in churches, we can be so stinking busy with church and with church activities that we're actually not forming productive relationships with unbelievers. Productive in the sense of that we're real friends with them, that they might actually see Christ at work in us and us have the opportunity to, to tell them about Christ. We've made a conscious decision as uh, the elders of our church have made a conscious decision that we're not going to fill up people's schedules. You know, and if you're listening to this and you're the pastor of a church, you're an elder, 
you're just a member of a church, I would strongly encourage you to encourage your church to do that very thing. Now, there's a danger when the church doesn't provide a lot of things that people will go other places to find that. You know, for example, let's say you have singles in your church and they're looking for relationships with other singles. They want something to be doing because they have a, a single, for example, has more time than a, than a married right. person. And so they're gonna, their simplicity is going to involve a little bit of busyness. Whereas a, uh, a family, say a family of four or five or six or more, they're going to be very, their time is going to be very filled with events, family events. And so if they're going to have any time to interact with their neighbors, to love their neighbors as they're supposed to be doing, they're going to need, they're going to need more time. Mm-hmm. And so there, it's, it's, it can be a complex question. Simplicity can be complex. complex yes, yes. Uh, but it's not hard. Simplicity is not hard to find. Often the hardest thing about simplicity is having the discipline to say no to the things that you need to say no to. I'll give you a couple of pointers on simplifying your family's life, assuming that most of the people are coming before we move on to solitude and silence. Uh, one of the best recommendations that I've ever heard about how to make your family's life more simple is from Dennis Rainey of uh, Family Life Ministries. <clears throat> Great ministry. They have a lot of, of uh, very helpful resources on their website. But one of the things, the Rainies have six children. And one of the things that they agreed early on was that as a family, a child would be, a child would be involved in a activity at a time. One. One. One activity. One child, one activity at a time. So that means the year piano got s- and soccer. No. No. Just piano or just soccer. And what they were doing, and you may be sitting there going, oh, I wish my family was like that. Well, let's ask an honest question. What's preventing your family from being like that? My children will raise up in arms. There'll be a revolt in the household. But... What will you have taught them? You have taught them the very valuable lesson that life is not about being busy and getting the most out of it. Perhaps you'll have the opportunity to share with them that this life has a priority on the kingdom of God and people coming into it. And that in the next life, in the new heavens and the new earth, everything but sin will be available to them. It's not as though they're going to miss out on all these experiences if you don't let them have it now. I may never play piano now. I'd like to, but I will one day. I may not get the chance to now. Remember, it's a whole worldview we're teaching our kids, not just a a busyness. I think that the other thing with your family's life is you just have to ask the question. Many of us just fall into doing things without ever thinking about it. Is, Is this activity, is this activity necessary? Must we do this? Will we be disobeying God if we don't do this? If you're finding that there's no margin, especially if you're finding that you never get to sit around the table together. Because that's where, for generations, children have learned to relate, to care, to love, to commiserate. Uh, They learn around the family table. We sit around our table for 45 to 60 minutes a night. Some of you are going, oh, my, how could you ever do that? Well, why, we wouldn't get anything done. Well, you know what we do? We talk about each other's day. My boys, who are two, four, and six, ask me, Daddy, how was your day? And what's going on there? Now, they can't relate to the complexity of some theological question that I was 
relating with. You heard us, should have heard the conversation we had about Kim Jong Il one night, a two a two year old, a four year old, and a six year old. Um, I'm, they can't even say Korea. <laughs> they can't even say Korea. But what it is is it's teaching them to care and to love about somebody more than themselves. It's also teaching them dis- the discipline of sitting and of um, and of and of uh, asking somebody else questions. Uh, the essence of what a relationship is to inquire into how somebody else is doing. I wonder if simplicity, I'm going to throw an idea out here, I wonder if simplicity isn't something we could apply, simplicity in life isn't something we could apply the regulative principle to. Uh, The regulative principle, uh, for those who are not familiar with it, is is a principle that we apply uh, to Christian worship, where we say that anything uh, not directly prescribed by God in Scripture is prohibited in our worship. Uh, Now, there are other denominations, such as the Lutheran position on that would be that anything that is uh, not directly... um, Forbidden. Forbidden, thank you. Not directly forbidden uh, would be okay. But I wonder that that first understanding of the regulative of the regulative principle that anything not prescribed in scripture could we say that anything not prescribed in scripture for the Christian is not necessary for the Christian. Hmm. Now that doesn't mean because obviously when we're talking about the Christian life uh, there's a lot of freedom for what a Christian can do. But that's a good question to ask. Is this something is what I'm doing right now, is, is the things that I'm filling my life with, are those things that God has told me to do, or are those just things I want to do? Hmm. It's a, it's it's a, a good, good question. question. No, it's a very good question. Uh, let's uh, close the section on uh, simplicity just with a verse from Second Corinthians. Uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he's concerned about them. And in Second Corinthians 11... Uh, he says to them, he gives them this warning. He says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid that in the same way the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds might be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Hmm. That's, that sums up simplicity that our lives are about devotion to Christ. Hmm. And if there's anything that's sneaking in there, is that not Satan working his wiles in our life by his crafty scheming, getting us, getting our eyes off of the goal, off the finish line, so that we won't finish the race? We need to keep our, our, our eyes, our hearts, our minds focused on the pure, on pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Well, moving on from there, the first then was simplicity. So we move on there to silence. Did you say silence? Yes, I said silence. <laughs> okay, let's not, let's not, we could make the podcast two hours long by uh, pausing for about ten seconds before, between everything <clears throat> we say. And that, you know what that would do? That would force our listeners to take a moment of silence. It would. Of course, it might make them impatient with us, too, and just have them turn it <laughs> off. They might but... turn off the podcast. <laughs> That's okay. We well, you know all three of our listeners are very faithful listeners. You yes, know they that. are. Yes. 
the um, I continue to be surprised. We're thankful for those of you who do listen and who send us comments and let us know that uh, you appreciate what we're doing. I, I'm amazed, just frankly, for the months that we've been doing this, that uh, occasionally somebody will just say, hey, just listen to your podcast, and I look at them and I go, why? <laughs> but thank you. Yes, thank you but very thank much. You. Um, I think that silence is an interesting thing because in the age that uh, Sean and I are about the same age, and... Um, in the generation that we grew up in... I'm older. Slightly. Um, in the generation that we grew up in, we were the first of the MTV But he's, he's grayer. I am. Significantly I'm grayer. I'm older, but he's grayer. Um, both Sean and my wife grew up in, in Southern California, actually in the same vicinity, even though they didn't know each other. But um, they both grew up, um, in part, on, on MTV. And something changed in the generation that we went to, to high school with where it became appropriate, even expected, that you would be doing multiple things at one time. Um, That you would be listening to the radio or watching MTV and doing homework at the same time. Um, I I grew up in in more of a a more simple, rural background. And we we didn't take cable, so that wasn't an option for me. And um, I've reflected on the fact about how I that feel is so bad for you. I know that you have, but it, I know that you do. But it, it, it's amazing um, some of the discussions that my wife and I have because of how and, and and I want you to laugh. I want you to take very seriously what I'm saying. How growing up in a background that was so noisy challenges the very ability of my wife and others to actually concentrate. Oh, yeah. This is a whole generation that struggles to listen to sermons. Absolutely. Um, I, because of not having that, uh, some people, as they've gotten to know me or whatever, they say, oh, you're such a good study or whatever. And, and I did okay in college and seminary and everything. But it's nothing profound. It's simply that I grew up um, doing one thing. And that... At one thing at, at a, a time. time. And that... Um, this is the kind of thing that we're going for in terms of solitude. Uh, most of us revolt at the thought of being alone with our thoughts, of being alone, period, with no stimulation going on at all. And then there are others of us who really wish we could be alone more. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's odd for us to have any moment of silence at all. We're used to being bombarded with sound and media and to have it be completely quiet, just me alone with my prayers or with my thoughts, seems very odd to us. But recognize that that's a phenomenon of the last 30 years, that for the, the millennia before that, they actually enjoyed some silence. Some peace, as my grandmother used to put it. Yeah, my grandparents used to put it. I, I just think I remember we had, gosh, we must have had six televisions in our house. Right, and one on all the time. One, there was always, almost always, yes, there was almost always a television on. But one thing that strikes me is that point when we started watching TV at meal time. Mm-hmm. I remember when we moved a TV into the dining room, and. We actually didn't keep it there long because I think I think my parents sort of said, you know what, this is 
this is wrong. <laughs> we need to be quiet at the dinner table. We need to have some conversation. This is destroying relationship. And so we took it out. It went, it went back to the other room. But it's that idea. Uh, do, we, do we know silence? I, another good example, you know, we were talking about growing up in the MTV generation. MTV now is very different. It's not as well-watched or listened to as, as it once was. It's very different now. Right. Um, but what we have today is the iPod. And this idea, and I, I'm saying this, I own an iPod. Right. But we have this mentality now where people are going around with, with the earbuds, those bright white earbuds in their ears, so that they're actually walking around in a crowd and yet closed off from the crowd. <clears throat> Bowling alone. Walking well, alone. Yeah. yeah. Bowling alone, walking alone. That's the title of a book, if you haven't read it yet, which is very interesting about the change in social structure in America. Good book to read. So what do we... <clears throat> what do we... Well, before we ask what do we do to promote silence, maybe we can ask why... Why would silence benefit me? I think the thing about silence is that it, uh, we've used the word a few times so far in this podcast uh, uh, that we ought to be seeking to be reflective. And if I'm constantly inputting something, audio, visual, something into my brain, there's not the opportunity for me to actively reflect on my life. There's a man in my congregation who struggles um, to uh, to repent of his sins. And he shared this several times in, in a men's Bible study. And I think that one of the reasons why, in general, I think that repentance is a difficult thing for Americans, and maybe particularly American males, is that we're very unreflective as people. We're used to constantly having some sort of stimulus, and we're actually uncomfortable being quiet. We're uncomfortable being alone with our thoughts. And yet, that's of the very essence of what it means to, to come before God, to pray, uh, and, and to um, be able to, to reflect on my own life. There are numerous examples in the scripture of that. Uh, I think of David, and constantly in the Psalms, talking about meditating on the word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart. And the problem with, with so much uh, information being fed into us and always being in a noisy environment is that while we're getting a lot of that information, we're not having the time to adequately deal with the information that we're given. Right. And right. so it's the same thing. That's why David talks about meditation. Meditation is not the emptying of your mind as it is in Eastern religions. Right. Rather, meditation is filling your mind with specific thoughts or one thought or a verse of scripture or, or a, a section of scripture and just quietly thinking about what does that mean? Right. How does that apply to me? You know, we talked about this the past two months. We've talked about preparation for worship. Right. And so often what we do is that we go to worship, we, uh, you know, we, we have our busy life, we go to worship, then we come back to our busy life. And what we suggested is you take time before worship to reflect and you take time after worship to reflect on what you've learned in the process of the sermon being preached. And when we don't do that, we become 
people who don't have a grasp on anything. We become people who know a lot but can't do anything with any of the information that we have. Silence gives us a chance, like you said, in prayer to listen to God. What does Jesus do? Jesus is so filled with the crowds, constantly you see him going, you know, guys, I'll be up on the mountain. See you in the morning. I'm going away to the mountain overnight. I'm going to take an overnighter, take a breather. I'm going to pray. Right. right. The very command for a Sabbath worship is a command for silence and rest and contemplation. Yep, yep. I've frequently um, have taught over the last couple of years that unless you can identify why I just sinned in that way, unless you can get back to what was I thinking, what was in my heart, what was I, um, what is it that I had centered my life around that that sin appeared more attractive to me than righteousness. Um, you have no hope of stopping sending that way. Unless you can get back to what is at, at, in your heart at the moment when you're tempted, <clears throat> you can't get back to, you, can't, you don't have a hope in my mind because you don't have, you don't have um, thoughts to be transformed that you're asking the Holy Spirit, you don't have scriptures to go to because you don't know what needs transformed. Right? And so I think that the, what the silence is doing is that it, it's helping you um, tweak apart your heart, to tease apart your passions, to tease apart oh, why do I do what I do? And we're very poor at that. And I think it's because we don't, we're not willing to be quiet. Very selfishly, and I think this is when it comes to devotion to Christ, uh, it, there is a benefit to everything that we do that is based in that, as we said from 1 Corinthians 11, or 2 Corinthians 11.3, that purity of devotion to Christ, there's a blessing that comes from that purity of devotion. If we're seeking out silence so that we can meditate on God's word, so that we can listen to God speaking to us by his spirit, with the word in our hearts, yep. uh, so that we can be reflecting on his ordinary means of grace, one of the, most, one of the quietest times in the worship service is when you take the Lord's Supper. And I like that. Yeah. You know, that's this time when God is ministering to us uh, through this ordinary way, the bread and the wine, and he's ministering to us. And so we're taking that time to be quiet and to listen and to let taste step in and speak for God. Mm-hmm. And, and let smell step in and taste for God and, or, and, and, and teach us about who God is and what Jesus has done through those ways. Um. Silence uh, is, this is a a quote from a gentleman by the name of Cornelius Plantinga, uh, and he he said this, he said, A quiet place, uh, silence is a quiet place in which we are at home with ourselves, in touch with God, and hospitable to the voices of others. Hmm. I want to take particularly that last part, hospitable to the voices of others. When do we get the most angry with our fellow employees, our fellow co-workers, our kids? So often it's when I've got something to do and you're coming in the way of me doing it. You're messing with my busy schedule. You know, you stepping into my life and asking me to do that at this moment messes with my control. And I need to be in control, right? Well... You're the captain of your own soul, so of course you do. Sure, sure. (laughs) So 
What silence causes us to do is become comfortable with the inevitable, to become comfortable with Mm. change. Because silence gets us to that place where God says, hey, I might not work out your day the way you think your day should look. But silence teaches you that patience and that calmness and that peace of mind, that closeness to God that we need. If you don't have that, you're going to get angry when people come in and mess with your schedule. But if you have silence, that's going to change your relationship to others. And it's going to, very selfishly, it's going to make you a better person. Well, and it... It's interesting when we're discussing, Sean and I were discussing what we do for this topic today, the, the first scripture that came to my mind, and maybe it's the one that's come to your mind, um, from Psalm 46 and, and verse 10. Uh, and, and you should read the rest of the psalm because there's, uh, there, there's a lot there. We're all familiar with this verse, but the, as usual, David gives us a, sort of a full theology lesson um, while he gives us the bottom line soundbite that we, that we enjoy. But Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And most of us, especially if you're passionate about solitude and silence and simplicity, you'll go, well, we don't do the be still part very well. And that's probably true. We don't tend to do the be still very well. Um, And maybe that's the simplicity part. But I'm not sure that um, that's the part we do worse. (laughs) I think that we do poorly at knowing God. And I think that the idea is precisely what you're saying, Sean, is that, that... when we force ourselves to stop, we recognize that we are not the captain of our own soul. That we are frequently foolish. That we frequently uh, take back uh, the control of our own lives. And we, uh, we don't um, recognize God for who he is. And that's our major problem. That's our discipleship issue. Is that we tend to put ourselves in the place of God rather than um, quietly submitting. Which goes back to, and we keep coming back to this verse, but I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 11.3, that purity of devotion to Christ. Uh, There's a great hymn, and you probably sang it last month, it's it's often sung around Christmas time, um, called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. And in that hymn, one of the verses says, Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing worldly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. Now, what's the hymn writer asking? He's asking us to stop talking, (laughs) stop doing what you're doing, pretend an angel of God just showed up, and now you're shaking in your boots. Here is the glory of God revealed around you, just like those shepherds, stop, stand in silence, and think for just a moment what God has done. Now, if we were to do that, if we were to discipline ourselves as believers every day to stop, pretend God's right there, which He is. We ask our kids, where is God? And the answer is everywhere. everywhere. Right, yeah. And it's not saying He's in the trees, it's saying, but that's saying that God is omnipresent. He's right here. He sees us. You know, it's not Satan who sees us when... I'm sorry. It is... (laughs) There there was a Freudian slip for you. It's not Santa who knows, you know, who knows when we've been naughty or nice. 
Okay, it's God it's who knows God. Yeah, exactly. when we're naughty or nice. Right, right. It's funny how you switch those letters in yes. Santa. Especially with that old, Saturday, <laughs> that old Saturday Live regime. <laughs> so, are we so devoted to Christ that we are willing to stop and ponder the Incarnation? It's, it's frequently the case, uh, especially, unfortunately in the circles in which Sean and I minister, that people are far ahead in their understand, sort of their supposed understanding of doctrine than their lives reveal. I would much rather have somebody in my congregation who perhaps is more simple in their understanding, but that their understanding has dug deeper into their life. And I think that's what we're saying, is that you can have it, it, know an awful lot and have it impact you awfully little. And that's a great danger um, of, of not shutting up and really pondering things and meditating on them, um, is that you can be a terribly shallow person who knows an awful lot, sort of. So what we've, what we've gotten through now uh, in, this, uh, in this hour, we've said to people, you need to, um, uh, you need to learn to say no. You need to shut up. <laughs> and forgive me if I've offended anyone by saying that. You need to learn to say no. You need to shut up. You and to, you need to get alone. And you need to get alone. Which solitude. Is a, solitude, yeah. I, I think that this is something that I, I've rediscovered um, in probably the last couple of years. I can remember coming out of... Uh, Coming into last spring and uh, reflecting around the table with some men that I was so happy that it was spring, not because I don't like winter, I love winter, I love snow, but, um, but I can't as easily uh, get outside and pray and walk in the winter as I can in fall or spring or summer. And one of the things that I love... It's not very easy to walk when you've got... 14 layers of clothes. Exactly, yeah, and boots that'll, that'll walk through the snow um, uphill both ways. Um, but I think that one of the things that I crave, and you might think I'm crazy as you're listening, um, is I crave to be out alone um, with God. I enjoy having time to be out, um, as I term it, uh, reading the other book. Uh, we talk about in, in yeah, Christian theology. The yeah, other in, book. yeah, in Christian theology, we talk about uh, that there's general revelation and special revelation. And as evangelicals, we do a, a really good job of emphasizing the Bible, which we absolutely should. <laughs> but I think that we do a poor job of emphasizing what there is to be gained from general revelation, um, in that we are, especially as mostly urbanized Americans. Um, 50% of the people live on the coasts, which means they basically live in cities around a lot of other people, um, that we don't, we don't very frequently get out in God's creation and enjoy him there um, by ourselves for the, purpose of, for the purpose of enjoying him. What does that mean, to enjoy God by, through his this, creation? I think that we've lost the capability to walk up to a plant and to look at its complexity and to be awed by just the complexity of this one plant and then to recognize that God effortlessly not only created this plant but millions of other plants 
as different from this one as one snowflake is from the other. And that what creation is designed to do, and, and of course, going out in creation is not the only place you can have solitude. Uh, Jesus talks about a prayer closet, and you can be somewhere. I'm just telling you my practice. Um, but the place of solitude that I enjoy is creation because it's uh, it's like the great reset button. I love the reset button on that computer. It's all filed up, whatever. As my one friend used to say, you punch it in the eye. And it, what a reset button does is it, it puts you back um, to to a neutral starting place, puts you back where you ought to be. Clean slate. It, clean slate. And I think that the, when I'm overwhelmed uh, by life, by relationships, by expectations, that when I get back out a solitary with God in his world, um, I get stilled and I um, remember the bigness of God and I remember that I'm not actually all that important in all of this and that he is. And it puts me back in the right place. Which is it's a very good place to be when... What impresses me about a lot of the older writers, when you read the Puritans, when mm-hmm. you read Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, uh, Jonathan Edwards was one of the, anybody, any of the older writers uh, that wrote solid stuff, you get back, even even a, I think of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, mm-hmm. when you read their fiction, uh, there is a... Uh, a connection with that other book that you're talking about. Absolutely. With the creation. They know the plants. They know the uh, the types of rocks and the types of soils. The habits of animals. The habits of animals. And you go, why on earth do they have this? Well, part of it is they, had, they were living in closer uh, community with the, with the animals and the plants and all that. Right. Uh, oftentimes we find ourselves in, in a concrete jungle. Um, but solitude... Is I call it I call it getting back to the hammock. Hmm. You know, solitude is is getting away from everything. And I I live here. We've got about forty acres of woods behind our house, and I've got two places out in the woods that I've put um, I've I put rope around the trees, and I can just take my hammock out there, hook it onto the rope, and I can lay there, look up at the look up at the leaves blowing in the wind, and just and just pray and read and think, maybe sleep. But what you do, and I, I think this is important about what you're saying about solitude, is when you get out there in the creation, what God has made, when you truly get alone, it's then that you realize more than ever that you're not alone. Absolutely. Because the iPod generation is all about being in the middle of everybody and being alone. Whereas what solitude does is it gets us away from everything in order to meet the one who is there, the God who is there, mm-hmm. and begin to think about why that matters. Mm-hmm. Why, why does my life matter? Why does God matter? Going back to what Camus said, what is the purpose of our existence? We've got to ask that question, and we've got to ask that question regularly. So many of us are far too comfortable with the busyness or, or our regular schedule or, you know, on, on Mondays I watch this TV show and Tuesdays I watch this TV show and Wednesdays I watch, I watch a movie because there's no TV show on. You know, we get in this process of coming home from work, which is good. Work is good. But we come home from work and we get in a process of doing something whereby 
If somebody were to ask us, what did you do last night? We would say, I don't know. It sure seemed to have gone fast, but I don't really feel like I accomplished anything last night. Solitude, as ironic as this is, is about accomplishing something. It's about learning what the things that you do every day in life, what their meaning is. Mm. And if we don't have that, um, you know, we've lost sight of, of why we're alive. Well, and I think that it, it uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that, that this is profitable because I think as Americans we're very used to all right, Sean, I'm at. Tell me what the cash value of this is. Oh, yeah. What am I going to get out of this? It's all got to come back to pragmatism, so, logistics. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I guess what we're trying to say is that it depends on what the goal of your life is. If the goal of your life is intimacy with God, fruitfulness in his kingdom, to be a blessing to others, then the best thing you can do is to live simply in silence, part of the time, in solitude. Because what best equips us to live kingdomly lives um, is to be close to God. And many of us, and the men in my congregation, uh, to their credit, are very honest. And they frequently say to me, I just don't feel close to God. And that's why I don't feel like obeying. And I appreciate the honesty. Because they're right. They have correctly attributed that I don't feel like obeying because I don't feel close to God. I don't have that sense of gratefulness to, of being his child, of being adopted into his family. That guilt, grace, gratitude is not, that dynamic is broken somehow for them. But how do we get that, how do we get that recovered? And I think it's that we've got to realize that uh, Christianity is a, is a reflective uh, form of spirituality. And without the, a simple life that gives me time for reflection and a devotion to getting quiet somewhere alone where you can't get instant message, you can't get called, nobody can interrupt you, that this is so much of a priority to you that you'll make it sacrosanct, um, that this is of the essence of, of living a fruitful Christian life. That's the cash value. The thing that you ought to most want is what we're trying to encourage you towards. So Christian spirituality is reflective. Absolutely. I, I think there's an illustration of this in um, going to bed at night. How many of us uh, are so busy during the day and then we get into bed and we're exhausted, but then we find ourselves lying awake and our mind is going a million different ways. If you find yourself like that, that's oftentimes a very good sign that you've not had adequate time to reflect because what's happening is you're getting to the end of your day you're, you're laying down and all of a sudden your mind has some breathing room and here's a chance to think and, and to ponder and to, to put the pieces of, of the life's puzzle together well you, certainly you could do that on your bed at night but if we're lying there awake at two in the morning trying to figure it out then maybe that's a good sign we've not rested and reflected and gotten back gotten out and gotten in the hammock a little bit more yeah yeah no doubt at all i i know of a man and we should close up here soon because we're uh, pushing the patience of our listeners but i know of a man who feels very trapped and he's trapped by the fact that he um, bought a certain house uh, that has a certain payment 
uh, his obligations that he's made to uh, his children in, in terms of uh, his education. Um, and so the stage of life that he's in, he's more towards the end of his career than the beginning of his career, but the, the stage of life that he's in, the choices that he's made up till now, um, have uh, confined him. He feels confined, that this mm-hmm. is what I must do. In um, order to keep up. In, in order to keep up. Yeah. And I think that part of um, implementing what we've said uh, is that this may be something, in order to get the best, uh, that may for you turn out to be very sacrificial. Um, if that man, if he were to come into my office and say, I want things to be radically different, um, there's some advice I'd give him, which is sell your house, get a different job, and change your commitments. That's radical. It is. It's absolutely radical. And it's horrifying to most people. But you just have to ask what's the most important. Yeah. Where are our priorities in the right place? Right. Right. And, if, and if they're not, we're going to be doing things. That's part of the way God works in the believer, is that he allows us to be confined by our life, hmm. to be controlled by our idols, so that we learn that they're idols. So we'll recognize them and tear them down. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we encourage you to maybe take some of the stuff we've said here and continue to think about it, uh, continue to... Uh, Get back to a life of simplicity, a life of silence, uh, a life of solitude. And might these things be a means of grace to you? Might God use these things in your life to draw you close to himself, uh, to build you up and to enable you to walk as godly men and women in this world? So may the Lord bless you now as you go and walk in his ordinary means. We'll see you next month.